Honestly, I don't know who to root for. We watched The Pigs versus The Freaks, which means it's time for another Portland at the Movies. In a world, in a time, in a land of eternal beauty, all that stands between a city and a disaster, in a city where anything can happen. If you thought you had seen it all. Pigs versus Freaks, you're going to call it that? Why not? Everybody else will. Hello and welcome to another episode of Portland at the Movies. My name is Todd Workoven and here as always is Mark Middleton. How are you, Mark? I'm uh, better now that we've finished watching this movie. <laughs> now, this is a, a, a prior experience as, as, as opposed to a present or future experience. Exactly, yeah. And joining us uh, in the stead of Brian the Unipiper Kid is Rick Emerson. How are you, Rick? Why, hello. Author and... and Raconteur. Raconteur. Yes. Yes. Uh, welcome to the show. This is a movie uh, called the, the Pigs versus the Freaks, which is a 1982 television movie. And when I contacted you about coming on the show, uh, we kind of gave you our big list of movies, and this is the one that you came back with. So well, tell us tell us your journey of how we got to The Pigs versus The Freaks. Well, okay, so here's the thing about this movie. So, uh, so I was actually, so you sent me this big spreadsheet of all the movies to select, and 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 I was scrolling through, and you know, whatever, and the, and this one jumped out at me because so here's the thing: I did not know this movie was made in Portland, but uh, or in Oregon, but I had this memory of seeing part of this film. And I want to say it was like 1986, maybe. So the only time I ever really traveled when I was a kid was like my dad would go to these nights at Columbus conventions. And so it's like, you know, it's like my, my dad, my mom and my brother and I would just get packed off to like a Holiday Inn or whatever. And then then my brother and I would basically just like sit in the room all night, you know, while my parents went off to do whatever they were to drink probably <laughs> um and but that was fine but that's because it was like the hotel usually yeah. like if we were staying at like a motel or something it almost always had you know free hbo in yeah. room and we were like awesome we are set color tv well, and if you're like 10 it's like room service and hbo especially in the 80s it's like you are set you don't need to oh leave. yeah it's like you know do you want to get some fresh air it's like i do not it's like a dream vacation <laughs> yeah and so and we never had hbo when i was a kid we didn't yeah. have so this is the only access we had to this was like if we would you know if i was over to friend's house who had it or if we were traveling so i had this memory and my brain maybe as i get older i'm increasingly suspicious of my own memories but i, I may be morphing these together in my head but i have two really clear memories of seeing films on hbo while in a holiday Inn, i think for the <laughs> night to columbus trip and one was this movie called conspiracy the trial of the chicago seven which is basically like a dramatized play of the chicago seven trial and the other is Pigs versus Freaks, which is strange because they're both sort of like the counterculture, like late 60s, yeah. you know, like the the fringe versus the man kind of a thing. Anyway, so I have this memory flipping around. And, of course, I was older than my brother, so I was in charge of the remote. And watching, like, the second half of this, like, I just landed on HBO. Or it wasn't HBO. It was landing on NBC, I think. Okay. And seeing the second half of this movie. Now, here's the thing. That was, like, is this possible? Like, almost 40 years ago. <laughs> 40 years ago, I saw it by accident. I only saw the second half of it, and I never saw it again. And yet, before I sat down to watch this uh, this weekend, I actually wrote down 
a couple of my memories to see how closely they jibe with the actual <laughs> oh, film. Awesome. And the two things that I remembered clearly, actually, it is how they were in the film. So I so I didn't remember a lot about the movie, but the stuff I remembered was accurate. So so it's good to know. Now, like, had you, you know, had you thought of this movie between then and <laughs> now, or I, was this like a a thing that you hadn't thought of in forever? Weirdly, it is, and for reasons I can't really explain, it is a movie that I have thought about, like not a lot, but that I have thought about. Like more than a few times, which over is the weird years. because it doesn't seem super up your alley as far as like. And it's not all that interesting or exceptional. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not like you know, it's not like a terrible film, but there's just not a lot that's. I mean, it's like a ninety-minute sitcom, basically. Right. Like if, you know, like if if we were sort of like to merge television now and television then, if we were to do like a limited series sitcom. You know, where it's like a four part, you know, whatever, but it's a mini, it's a sitcom. That would be this. This would be a four part limited series sitcom event. Yeah. And I was shocked because, yeah, this is a TV movie. And when the music came on, which and I want to talk a little bit about some of the people in the credits, when the music came on, that was like just this jaunty, like the love boat or three's company. I was. Yeah. I it was surprising to me that TV movies could be anything other than the drama of the week or something. Right. I was like, oh, they just made TV movies that were like long sitcoms. Yes. Yeah, it, it felt like an episode of Gomer Pyle with a lot of of the uh, segments where you flashback between, uh, what, what are those called? There, there was a lot of like montages. Clip shows. clip shows, yeah. yeah well, or, and so, uh, sorry, this is, sorry I, have to yeah, yeah. I forgot to print these out last night, so I'm bringing up <laughs> mic. Um, let's see if I can get my computer going in the background so what i actually did because uh montage this is, this is montage just, was the word i, I wrote down uh, over and over every time we had one we need a montage because they needed a lot, a lot of montages so i uh last night while i was watching this because i mean honestly and this is no disrespect to the people who made this film it's not like you need 100 percent of your brain capacity to, to process the action as it's happening right so while the movie is going on i went online and i found I found a complete copy of the TV guide from oh, uh, nice. uh, like from the month that this that this movie aired, um, and that's uh, one of the projects I have in my in the background. I found an old TV guide at the bins, and I was like, I should go on like Imager or something like that and just post a page a day of this entire yeah, TV some, guide because it's so fascinating. Somebody had scanned and posted, and it's like the file is a gig and a half, so it's like <laughs> you can see like the pulp texture Great. in the paper. <laughs> Um, but so it was for, um, uh, it was, uh, I think it was 1984, 1982, whenever it yeah. was, this aired. Yeah. And 82. so, and then I was just scrolling through the TV guide, reading all of the listings or whatever. And there were an astonishing number of quote movies that really were just stitched together compilations of previous segments from the show with like nine minutes of new material added as wraparound. And so this was most frequently done with cartoons. So there would be like how Bugs Bunny won the West. Yeah, and there was uh, what's his name? Is Denver Pyle, the guy who played Uncle Jesse on the Dukes of Hazard, and he just did this sort of introduction and then an outro and then like one little like back and forth interaction with with Bugs Bunny, but the rest of it was just like anytime Bugs Bunny ever appeared in a cowboy hat or with Yosemite <laughs> Sam, they just clipped those out and stitched them together into yeah. a into a. Plot. Well, it's the equivalent of because I remember when The Simpsons did their first clip show, they kind of made fun of that whole idea and like sitcoms do it all, like they get trapped in the freezer down in exactly. the basement or whatever, and they have all their little. But it was is mostly just to fulfill 
it's like it's like a greatest hits album. It's exactly. Like I have one that, more thing to contri- before my contract is over. We need this many episodes, so we'll do a, a flashback. Well, and you know what I also discovered is during the time period that this movie, The Pigs versus the Freaks, aired, there was wait for it an actor strike going on, and so. I know I'm getting totally far afield, so I apologize. No, this is oh, perfect. Um, this is great. Well, remove all this ever, in post if, if you like. If anyone's going to go this deeply in <laughs> The Pigs versus The Freaks, this is the place. Really? <laughs> the this is only it. time and place that will ever exist. Well, because for this I have probably happen. thought about this movie more over the last 40 years than anybody involved with it. I mean, so. Um, but it then is... Brian Dennehy's family, who is receiving a mysterious ch- royalties <laughs> check right now <laughs> out of the $4 middle of nowhere. Of, yeah. the, uh, if you look at the programming grid for TV Guide, it really does underscore how different things were because there's the you know the fall it's their fall preview issue oh nice and they actually note they say you know because of the because of the uh, the actor strike you know some of this is subject to change many of these shows may be delayed or not aired and then they're like here's every show that's going to be on this fall and it's like a single page and it's a grid of you know it's like five or you know seven days of the week three networks and only prime time really and so it's like a grand total of like 25 shows or something. Yeah. And that's it. And they're like, this is the entire, here's every, the, the, behold this cornucopia <laughs> of entertainment. And it's just, it's almost nothing. Yeah. But one of them is a two-hour movie called Carnival of Thrills, starring the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> <laughs> Not even starring the actors' names. It's, it's starring the Dukes of Hazard. It's. Uh, I will send you this image later so you can post it. The, 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 the image is fantastic. It's like some sort of a weird... It's like that guy who did all of the uh, the original like Star Wars uh, posters, but it's like if you crossed him with like a really bad romance novel <laughs> cover artist. It's like Drew Struzan meets That's Fabio. His name, yes. So, <laughs> the Dukes of Hazard in Carnival of Thrills. Bo risks his life for love. Will a conniving, seductive woman turn the Dukes against each other? Bo fights with Luke to become a daredevil stunt driver. He's lost his head, but he could lose his life. Starring Tom Wopat, John Schneider, and Catherine Bach, 8 p.m. CBS. Wow, so that was an official. So there you go. So that was so wow. that's a two hour movie, and I'm assuming that there's. Oh, that poster is amazing. Yeah, I'm assuming there's like you know some new material in this, but a lot of it is just like, do you remember that time that the General Lee jumped that thing? Right. Um, <laughs> and then like every other page of that TV guide is advertising Shogun with Richard Chamberlain. Oh wow! Um, yeah. Because that was the era when just like everything. You know, had it was like because he was like the king of the miniseries. It was like the Thornbirds and the whatever. The winds, the winds of war, exactly by Herman Wouk. And I only remember that because I saw the the ads a billion times. Uh, final thing, and so on page thirteen, and so this did air. And the weird thing about this movie about Pigs versus Freaks is that it was made in nineteen eighty. <laughs> was that it was made? It, well, yes, <laughs> that, and then it was delayed because this is the TV guide from September thirteenth, nineteen eighty. Which and the movie was made that year, and yet it somehow didn't air until depending 82. on which e- yeah. either eighty two or eighty four, depending on which source. Okay, but there's a description of it, so I don't know why it was delayed. But here's how this movie is described uh, by by TV Guide. Oh, perfect. Um, Pigs versus Freaks, an NBC movie about the student unrest of the 1960s. <laughs> what? <laughs> that may not be strictly accurate. <laughs> The student unrest. What a wildly reductive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> reductive. I was going to put away IMDb, which I have pulled up to, to read the overview. I was like, oh, maybe I won't need that. Oh, I will need that? Okay. Yeah. yeah so, so yeah. Let, and, and one of the other things we've discovered throughout doing this podcast, particularly because we've done a – they have made a ton of TV movies in this town. And so we've watched a bunch of them starring – a bunch of people like Ed Harris and Ed Asner yeah. and Mary Tyler Moore and like all these people. 
And they're all the same thing. Like they do not demand that you sit there and watch it as a thing. It is meant <laughs> no. to do like while you're doing laundry or making eggs or folding this or dusting that so that just there is something Out running errands. <laughs> <laughs> I love watching this movie when I get groceries. Well, there are there are two kinds of shows. There are shows where you can go to the kitchen to get a sandwich and you have to pause. Right. And there are ones where you're just like. You know, I'm gonna get a sandwich. Don't don't bother. To, I'm fine. Don't pause it. I'll be okay. It's it's all right. It's, I wrote down. Yeah, I wrote down at one point. All this had to be was better than whatever whatever was on the other two channels and just good enough. Yeah. And so many of these, they're not badly made. They're not, but they are a formula. So much so, so the director of this, whose name I forgot to wrote, uh, write down, um, did Smoking the Bandit 3. Yeah. <laughs> Which I the, saw in the theater, by the way. Oh, the third one, <laughs> yes. too? Oh, nice. Uh, the Kenny Roger, The Gamblers, yep. but part two and three. And then a ton of, and I love every single one of them. And we've done In the Line of Duty. Um, which one did we watch? In the Line of Duty, it'll come up. But it was with Bruce Campbell and Terry Hatcher, I think. Were, no, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, not Bruce Campbell. Um, anyway. I, I don't remember. Um. But he's done In the Line of Duty, A Cop for the Killing, Manhunt in the Dakotas, Street War, and The Price of Vengeance. Oh, uh, Blaze of Glory is Blaze the one Glory, that we yeah. did. Yeah. And then but these must be post-apocalyptic movies. Category 6, Pray for the Disaster, and Category 7, The End of the World. So he's done all of those, which makes sense because he did a ton of the in the line of mm -hmm. they have all of those. And this seems like a precursor to that. I don't know if like the 80s were either the best or worst time to be like a screenwriter or a director. Because it's like it seems, a journeyman director. Yeah. Because you know, it seems like you like there was a lot of demand for new product. I mean, obviously there is now, too, but it's like they, they were churning out TV movies like constantly. And so it's, if you had like an even decent idea and even like one connection to the industry, it seems like maybe you had a pretty good shot of getting a script made. On the other hand, like it couldn't be good. Or it's like, <laughs> why would you bother to make it good? Like there was right. no point. Like, right. like you could make yeah, it good, it but like just good enough. it wasn't needed. Yeah, like there was right. no, you didn't have to pass a threshold to really get on the air. <laughs> right. I mean, it was just. Right, it had to like, be just good enough yeah, to fold like, laundry to. Yeah, it's like, so if this was like, a, <laughs> it was like a thing you did while you were like writing your movie that was going to go into theater because that's where the, it's, I mean. I'm now at that age where it's like everything I say, I feel like I have to preface it with like people People today won't remember this or yeah. won't understand what I mean when I say. Yeah. But it's like the idea that, I mean, for the longest time, it was just assumed that television was bad. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, quality television was like an oxymoron that it was whenever something came on TV that was not terrible, it was considered exceptional. And it was just, uh, you know, and it was because everything was just like I said, it wasn't awful, but it was just sort of there. It was like it was it was kind of just like unsweetened filler. oatmeal. Yeah, yeah. just filler. Yeah. yeah. So what uh, can you give a an overarching uh, I could, description yeah, I, of, the, of the plot. I'll read, I'll read the summary here. So it says, In a small <clears throat> town, the hippie faction often clashes with the mainstream. To settle their differences, the hippie freaks take on the town police pigs in a football game. On opposing sides of the fence are Frank, the police sergeant, and his son Neil. Also at odds are Neil and one-time friend Doug, a returned Vietnam vet who has joined the police force, who is also protective of his younger sister, who prefers uh, the hippie element. Good grief. To make things more intense, Mickey South, who has fled to Canada to avoid the war, returns to play for the Freaks football team. Tensions mount 
and all are challenged as the climax of this film approaches. What? So this is like, so this what is what they call sentence. a high concept movie, which is, you know, ironically, that's just the sort of like, it's Die Hard in an elevator or yeah. whatever. Like yeah. that's, This is just like hippies versus cops, a football game, go. And that, I mean, I, I can't even. And it is chock full. I mean, speaking of, of, of it is a, just a murderer's row of fantastic character act. And Brian Dennehy yeah. is in this, Patrick Swayze in one of his first roles. Um, Adam Baldwin Adam Baldwin who I was I didn't know by name and I thought maybe he'd be another one of the Baldwins but he is not um, and and I recognize it said music by Mark Snow and I was like well that sounds familiar Mark Snow and this the score of this movie is just I have a whole thing about the score here okay should we yeah. play maybe find a, a, a spot that we can just play and it is so like zany 80s comedy and just I was shocked to find out that Mark Snow then went on to do all the music for X-Files, The Lone Gunman, Smallville, Pearl Harbor yep. 2, Pearl Mageddon, whatever that is, um, Millennium Project ALF with ALF. He did Payback, which was the TV movie we did. Wait, with, um, hold on. You missed the obvious joke. Pearl Harbor 2, Pearl Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> or just Pearl Harbor again. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Pearl Harbor. I didn't. I'm, who am I? The writers of Slapped the, the movies, <laughs> uh, and then he also Mark Snow did a bunch of the in the line of movies. So and he's still doing it. He did um, New Mutants and uh, Blue Bloods. So like all these people are super. Like if you want a building built and you want yep. it built fast and right, then you get these people to do it, and they'll just knock it out of the park and cheap and easy and well, professional. Is, and I mean the thing is, I mean it's like it's you know it's I, I'm not like the world's biggest. Malcolm Gladwell fan, but he had that whole thing about the 10,000 hour rule that you got to do something for 10,000 hours to become expert at it. And he always uses the Beatles in hamburgers as this example. But there's also something to be said for the idea that it, like back back in in the day of network television, it was like you had to like we need product, kid. Get, yeah. Get get the you know get the Underwood, get to yeah. writing, and you just had to churn. <laughs> Todd, I've been meaning to tell you. <laughs> I uh, but the idea you just but it was like. Look, I need this. I need this first draft, second draft done, and in like a week or whatever. And if you do that often enough, you get to where you can just sort of knock stuff out. Yep. And so, that's why a lot of the early television writers, it's like Rod Serling, or you know, and the modern equivalent of that is a guy like Aaron Sorkin, probably. Oh, who, sure. You know, Aaron Sorkin wrote essentially wrote or polished every episode of The West Wing for the first five seasons, four seasons, uh, every episode of Sports Night, his other shows, you know, yeah, everything yeah. kind of goes through the Sorkinizer, and Rod Serling was like that, and, um, you know, Matthew Weiner was like that with Mad Men, and you can tell that there's a certain type of person who just, they just, you know, it's like they can work on a deadline, and it's yeah. like they don't need to labor over it like an artist. It's yeah. like, uh, okay, give me an hour and a half. And that's, I mean, that's half of what advertising is, too. It's yeah. like you are, you can be, you don't have the time to to sit there and be creative that you have the right. formula that you can you can pump out those things in a decent <clears throat> manner and still you know do it in a way that doesn't feel uh whatever but yeah so that it was really oh and tony randall tony randall tony randall as bombata organimus the sex cult question mark leader <laughs> But every time I see, did you guys see the <laughs> see the um, old Saturday Night Live skit? Um, Tom Hanks was the host. Uh, no, Tom. H yeah, Tom Hanks was the co host, and he was on. It was like short attention span Jeopardy or something like that, or bad memory Jeopardy. And so Tom Hanks is the contestant, and Tony Randall is the host. And every time Tom Hanks sees Tony Randall, he goes, 
Tony Randall. <laughs> okay. And ever since then. Not to jump ahead too much, but so I, I got, so I kind of broken down my stuff into like good and bad and yeah, anachronisms yeah. and whatever. Under good, my first thing, all caps, Tony fucking Randall. <laughs> and then I underlined it like three times. That is some authentically inspired casting. I it is. Know you. I, so. I it know. was very, yeah, he plays this hippie cult leader dressed like Jesus with the long hair and the, and he's leading his hip, his hippie well, women his harem his of, harem of I, girls i mean i i mean i don't want to, I, I i feel like i have so much to say about this that i could just easily just monologue the entire thing which i don't want to do so i'll follow right, your lead on how to proceed but i have many thoughts about well the yeah so character. it is it is the hippies of this small town are 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 hassled by the pigs and they decide let's settle this once and for all in a football game and so basically the whole movie is mon different nine different montages of practices long of leading up to and then there's some inter, you know, dynamics between the thing. And then there's a Canadian guy whose beard I thought was fake. And it was going to be a reveal the whole movie that he's like, aha, this beard has been fake the whole. Sadly, nope. it was not. It was supposed to be real. <laughs> yes. Maybe it was a, a new a new person who had beard detail that was just getting into the industry. Everybody else was professional and fast. Yeah. And you have the beard guy was and new. you have these uh, personal relationships like the, the chief of the police is also the father of the head of you know uh, the oldest boy from the the 45 year old <laughs> from he, he was the oldest son and eight is enough oh funny yeah. i see i didn't watch that yeah. show and uh <laughs> well and then the well so yeah so the 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 quarterback uh lead right. hippie is yeah he was the oldest son and it is enough his the guy who played his dad who was the chief of police and also the coach of the pig you know right. police football team he, I forget his name because that he's a character actor. Yeah. So that's he's, you know, he's the one of that, those, guy. that, that guy. Eugene um, Ro- Roche, yeah. or, okay, or Ro- Roush, maybe. Roush. So among the things he played, so he played Marky Post's father on Night Court. Dang it, that's um, where I knew him, yeah. and I was like, yeah. maybe it's from Webster because he was also had a long running role in Webster somehow. Because I was like, all of these people are like just familiar like they yeah. are all that guys yeah and brian dennehy has never changed he has always looked the same <laughs> i wrote forever. down brian dennehy has always been 50 i, I was <laughs> gonna say even to know that it was made four years before yeah. i thought it was like well that tracks he was born his high school his, his kindergarten picture just looks like brian dennehy now <laughs> well, I mean, maybe not now i mean but. it is not a coincidence that both he and wilford brimley are in cocoon because it's just like <laughs> we need guys true. who won't age <laughs> who will be look this movie may take a long time these guys need to look this age always it's like i've got two people for you um and the here's an interesting thing about this movie so it's i, I mean i i mean i should say it's not it's not a terrible film it's not a great film there are things about it there are things about it that it's I thought, a little warmer than room temperature water I, there were things about it that i thought were authentically good there were a lot of things about it that were just not so much bad it's just sort of like predictable or just That's it's just you know cringy. kind of toothless a little bit but i will say a couple things uh it I don't know. I mean, I'm going to resist the urge to make everything about a commentary on like our, our present American moment or whatever. But, but so this movie presumably takes place in September of 1968. Oh, they kind of screw up their timing because at one point there's a scene outside a movie theater and it says the graduate now in its fifth week, which would have made it January of 68. So oh, their timing okay. is off by like, you know, eight months or something. Is that but, the only appearance of the graduate in this movie? Because there is a literal special credit 
for uh, well, I'm sure the graduates. They probably couldn't clear it, or they ended up having to cut it for time. Probably okay, it's, or you know, there was like some sort of a you know, they may just not have had the budget. Because yeah, it's like was it playing on the on a TV in the background or something that I missed? Because there was a whole credit for like thanks to the graduates. I think or... a lot of times it's like if you watch movies in the closing credits, they will list songs that aren't in the movie, and you're like, oh, they either couldn't clear oh. this or that scene got cut. Because I'm sure it's one of those things where they shot nine hours of footage right. and they for a night for a, what an hour they had and like footage film. for at least five more montages. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> this movie. Um, the uh, so, but they so it takes place in in September of 1968. So that would be like now, and it is an interesting. It's an interesting concept by which I mean it is easily graspable. The idea of like hippies and cops yep. are going to settle their differences with this one football game in this kind of small, all American you know town called Clearview or whatever. Which yeah. is so it's like the symbolism is laid on pretty heavily. Um, I mean it's it's essentially. Uh, it's it's elongating and kind of diluting the all in the family uh, approach, which is the idea that everybody who's watching this, because this is the, the era of broadcasting, mm-hmm. when there's only three networks, and so it's like you got to appeal to the widest possible audience. Like there's no niche, and so everybody who's watching this has someone they can root for or identify with. It's yeah. like your dad identifies with the cops, and the kids identify with the hippies, yeah. and the stoners identify with the stoner or with Tony Randall's character or yeah. whatever. Right. Um, but that would be like now if we made a movie about the events of. 2011 so it's like i don't know it's like a comedy featuring like remember when that uh that uh representative from arizona gabby giffords got shot in the head right it's like and there's a zany football game too (laughs) or it's like you know jerry sandusky goes to prison and there's a kooky football game it's weird right like you would not dance off in the town square to keep the library open i would raise a lot of eyebrows now if you're just like we're gonna take this horrific event from 12 years ago and make a movie about it now and it's going to be like this slaptastic comedy <laughs> and it's you know but it's also going to have this like horrific like ongoing world tragedy at the core of it yeah it's just i mean it's not even really wrong it's just strange because that's not a thing that would be done now it is I very think. weird so anyway but yeah they are good and um mickey who i thought had a fake beard that's the adam baldwin guy he he had fled to canada to uh evade the draft and then came back came back to play this football game. Yep. And to see his estranged girlfriend. That's the I guess, but I could not I could not figure out his motivation for putting himself at such risk to like play this football game. But I guess he's wearing a helmet. Well, because I think see, this is you can like I'm reflexively trying to defend the film. <laughs> you're missing the subtle you're Well yeah, wouldn't well would they they call him up and he has told the story that he's now a big High paid lumberjack, lumberjack yeah, pay, yeah, receiving top dollar and doing all the things, and really behind the scenes, he's uh, you know he's a dishwasher in a in a cafe, and so you you see him hang up the phone, and then he goes back to his dishwashing job, and so he's he's reflecting on his plight in life and going, well, maybe I should go play a okay. A, I I a think to be game. fair, I, I think know. as I was folding laundry or doing dishes or whatever <laughs> I was doing while this movie was playing. I think I missed that part in the phone ah. booth, which is why when he later shows up at the hippie commune with his big crazy beard and no one recognizes him, I'm like, oh, he's in a disguise. Right. And then he's going to be like, ha it's me, everyone, <laughs> by, by taking off the beard. Well, the beard was actually so bad that I thought for a minute, I thought, like, well, is this like is this uh, uh, in the world of this movie? Is it supposed to be a fake beard? In other yeah. words, is it? Right. And so I actually wrote down to myself, <laughs> I wrote down. 
And that fake beard wouldn't fool anybody. And then moments later, oh my God, it's Adam Baldwin. <laughs> so it totally did fool me. Um, the So for what it's worth, so I mentioned at the top of the here that the I had these two memories of scenes from, from this film from when yeah, I saw it back yeah. in the 80s, which is at least 35 years ago. So um, one of them was, and it's interesting that this stuck with me because it's, I think, you know, when you're a kid, it's, I, I don't know, I think it does, it sometimes doesn't take a lot to sort of, you know, your brain's a lot emptier for one thing. And so it's like, but, um, but he has this, he has this moment when he's talking to his estranged girlfriend and she's like, well, you know, your life in Canada seems, you know, it's okay. You're, you know, sure. You can't really come back home without danger, but you're up to, you're a lumberjack and you've made a new life for yourself. And he admits that he's not really a lumberjack. He's a dishwasher. And he has this line, which I wrote down in advance of watching this. He said, um, he said, I'm just a, he said, I'm just a dishwasher, $50 a week and all the scrap I can eat. Which is a really kind of unpleasant yeah. existence to think oh, about. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. the idea of all the scrap I can eat. It's that's very evocative. It language. really, I mean, like literally and figuratively, yeah. that's a bad taste in your mouth. You're like, that's a bad life. <laughs> and I, I mean, I do think, for what it's worth, I have to say that I think this movie at least kind of nods toward, in its own really blunted, watered down way, it nods toward a lot of the real issues because this is only, I mean, this is this is like less than a decade after Kent State. You know, yeah, and right. it's it's only twelve years after the like all the the, the riots in Chicago, yeah. and it's you know it's only eleven years after Altamont and Manson and you know all of that, and it's and it's only five years. And here's the amazing thing: it's only five years after the end of the Vietnam War. So right. when this movie was made, the Vietnam War had only been over for five years, right. and and there were still a lot of people who were stuck in Canada because. The U.S. government did this thing where they they uh, they can remotely canceled the passports of a lot of people who had fled to Canada, and then at a certain point, some of those people tried to come back, and then they would be stuck. It was like the terminal; they would be stuck between countries where it's like Canada wouldn't take them back, we wouldn't take them back, and they had nowhere to legally live. And if you watch the Ken Burns Vietnam War documentary, he does this interview, this ongoing interview with several people, you know, where he tracks what they did throughout the war. And one of them is a guy who ran to Canada. And at the end, he's still in Canada. He's a Canadian citizen. But he actually says at the end, he's like, he's like, I'm a Canadian citizen. You know, I'm I'm happy to live here. You know, it's a great country. He's like, I wish I could come home. He's like, I wish I had not renounced my citizenship. He's like, wow. it's the biggest regret of my life. He's like, I would give anything to go back and not renounce my American citizenship. Wow. And so I think that was a thing that well, was and, a and, lot of people. And and like you said, it kind of represents everyone. The Patrick Swayze character, who is his, he, his character went to uh, the military and just got out and is now a rookie. He's the rookie police officer in this town, so which is why he kind of knows a lot of the quote-unquote freaks because they all kind of grew up together. And he's sitting down with um, Brian Dennehy in this diner. And Brian Dennehy kind of plays the old guard, small town. I mean, I believed he was like well, He's like Archie disgusting. Bunker as cop. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, I mean, he's so good in this. Yeah. Just as a, I totally believed everything he was. And so he's talking with Patrick Swayze about, oh, we did the, these young hippies need to learn or whatever our way is best. And then, oh, you're, you're idealistic, but that'll, that'll wear off. Don't worry. And Patrick Swayze kind of says, well, what if that's not good? Like, what? What? Who says you're right? Right. And he's pushing back to in his institution, and he says at one point, when I went to the military, I thought I'd be a hero. They hated us over there, and then when I came back, they hated us over here. Yeah. And now no one likes the cop. There was a lot of struggling, like with why don't people? I don't get the cops saying I don't get it. Why don't people like us anymore? Which is still very relevant. I mean, that's all of this is still happening yeah. in its own way. I wrote down here. Um, 
this particular depiction of cops is timeless and can work in any era. And I was like, at when when Brian Dennehy was kind of going on and on, and and I was like, oh, here we go, kind yeah. of that thing. And I was really surprised that the Patrick Swayze character said, wait a minute, no. Like he pushed back, which yeah. was kind of I was kind of surprised yeah. that there was even that level of of introspection around it. There's also there were also a few things that were I don't know if they were meant to be jokes or just sort of like tossed off lines that were uh, when I said that there were some things that were uh, arguably subversive in this. And I don't know if oh, it was yeah. intentional or if it's just uh, or if I'm projecting onto it because of, you know, with hindsight. You know, sometimes things are meant and sometimes things only like the meaning they take on a different resonance later on. But they're at one point, Brian Denny, he's good. They're walking down the street and uh, it's like Brian Denny's talking to the mayor, I think. And because the mayor is like firmly anti hippie and wants them just like wiped out. Yeah. And he makes some joke about uh, he makes some joke about like killing all the hippies. And Denny's character says this thing about like, you can't just shoot protesting students. And I was like, whoa, that like, again, it's like not that long after like the National Guard literally killed protesting students in, right. you know, in Ohio. So, yeah, I had that written. I can't find it right now, but I had that written down where it's like you can't just shoot me like. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, well, was... and they open the whole movie. This entire movie opens with um, For What It's Worth by Buffalo Springfield, which is about the Kent State killings. Oh. And so it's, uh, mm. you know, uh, and it's just, I, wait, I'm, no, I'm confusing this with Ohio by Neil Young. But it's, but it's, <laughs> but it's about, uh, but it's about police brutality well, and about the, you know, the killing of protesters. And one of the odd B-plots to this zany comedy set against the backdrop of one of America's greatest tragedies is that this, this small town police group is unveiling that they ha- now have a tank. And they have this weird, like, right. it's not a miniature tank, but it's like a, a smallish tank, I guess. Well, but it's still a tank. Yeah. Tank. Well, it's obvious, and it's like obviously a fiberglass body put on a car, <laughs> right? Because it goes way too fast, and there are no treads. Like it's, and so it's clearly like they just made a cardboard shell and stuck it on a Datsun. <laughs> I didn't even know. Yeah. It's well, and so this is, uh, I mean, and they named, and I, if I recall correctly, and so again, keeping in mind this movie was made in eighty and came out in eighty two. The tank, I believe, is called the MX something or other. Okay. And this was right around the time that Reagan was pushing the MX missile. MX missile. Uh, the peacekeeper, he called it. Oh, And okay. there was a lot of debate about it because right. it was this this incredibly powerful intercontinental ballistic missile. And in Reagan, it was like one, it was that and Star Wars, you know, the strategic defense initiative. Those were his two things. So I feel like there's, because I, my guess, I don't really know. I'm guessing if you were a screenwriter for television at this time, making made-for-TV movies, there was you were probably I mean not even discouraged you were probably just told like this can't be like a political screed like you this can't be too smart it can't be too sharp it can't be too biased one way or the other and so there was probably that probably counted as much as I'm sort of laughing at it that probably counted as a little bit of subversive like I'm gonna slide like a little bit of something in here that maybe people will get or maybe they won't but that was probably most you could do as a TV movie writer you know just sort of nod at things like that oh totally did Animal House have a tank in it? Okay. Yeah. So I wrote this down. So this, I, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm doing that thing no, no. where it's just like it's just <laughs> becoming the me show again. I, I know. I apologize. This I, is why we have guests on. <laughs> well, you can see I wrote like four pages of 12 point notes here. <laughs> yes. So um, the so a thing about 
I will not make this a digression about Animal House, but I will say that I, I saw, for the first time, I saw Animal House on the big screen. In fact, I think it was right before COVID, so like 2019. Okay, I've only seen it like once, maybe. I have seen it hundreds and hundreds of okay. times. But I saw it for the first time on the big screen in 2019 at the Hollywood, and it was a packed house, and it was... and. Uh, just as a side note, I will say that, you know, uh, even though I've seen it a jillion times, I was like, okay, seeing it on the big screen that audience, I was like, I wonder how it'll seem. And it was both more and less offensive than I expected in, you know, because when you see it with a crowd, you notice you're things very that much you more don't, aware. you're yeah. aware. And I was, and it was not offensive in the ways that I expected it to be, but it was, there were things that jumped out that I did not expect. It, it was, but... The one thing I noticed about Animal House, which is present in this too, is that Animal House, which is set in 62, I think. Um, so I think it's the year before the Kennedy assassination, I believe. And Animal House, it gets the same thing. It's like the sort of, the, you know, it's like the man and then these like these rebellious college age kids in this small town. And Animal House ends with a riot. It ends with a full-on riot where, uh, at one point, um, uh, Kevin Bacon and Mark Metcalf, who play ROTC guys, Reed National Guardsmen, right. try to kill some of the outsiders. They try to kill, you know, the uh, they try to kill the sort of, you know, the, the the fringe element. And there's a scene where, like, Mark Metcalf takes out a bullet and puts it in his and attempts to shoot Stephen first, who is also in this film, by the way. Yeah. And so it ends with this riot which is not an accident. That's an intentional choice that John Landis made. And this movie, The Pigs vs. the Freaks, ends with a riot during which a tank <laughs> rolls in, you know, onto the yep. field. And that seems like a not-too-subtle nod at, like, hey, remember when everything was, like, shot to hell, you yeah. know, just, like, five years ago in this country and we were all at each other's throats? So, I mean, that does seem to be... That does seem to be a sort of processing of the event, you know in this sort of innocuous way, not too long after the event. And this is sort of a television friendly, like animal house solving their problems by having a football game between the frat boys and the school administration. I mean, it's, it's basically the same story of this. Yeah. I mean, it's institution versus the hippies instead of the deltas. And you have the, the, you know, the pigs instead of the college administrators and and the big house on the hill that they, you know, the, the, hippie pad that the I guess we could have in. done that we could have done animal house was, made, was filmed in Oregon I guess we could have done that but it's too what well, you were we jonied you on that one well it's just also you know you said we're trying to find things that are maybe overlooked or not not that great yeah and you know and, and I will say just as a side note that animal house is still it is still like shockingly funny I okay. mean, it's just, and the, like some of the humor in there has not aged a bit. Some of it, I mean, and a lot of the stuff in that movie that is offensive now was offensive then. Right. I mean, it's just sure. sort of like even then. And was, I think it's just been kind know. of meme to death where I've seen too many college kids with the yeah. John Belushi college poster or whatever, Absolutely. just sort of bad taste in my mouth. But it ends with this, you know, it ends with, a, I mean, and, and, you know, a football is obviously its own metaphor for war. Uh, you know, I mean, George Carlin has done this whole thing about, you know, uh, you know, the difference, like baseball is played in a park and like war is played at like, you know, like Apocalypse Memorial Stadium. <laughs> there's a two minute yeah, warning and sudden death. Yeah. And it's just and so there's like this metaphor for war during which a tank rolls onto the field. Yes. So, and then shoot soap suds. Yes. Soap suds? Which, which was a riot control tool. So, oh really? Yeah. So that's, oh, that's now. Know. Now it's a club activity. Right? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Those clubs where they spray spray you. Foam party. Uh, Kurt Hansen, who was the FBI agent, 
uh, has is also one of those. Hey, it's that guy, except for movies, <laughs> just movies. Bait him. He was in uh, Harvest of Fear and Path of <laughs> Evil and Homewrecker uh, and The Goonies. And he's one of the and he was a Multnomah County Sheriff. Oh, really? He was. Oh, nice. He, he was a Multnomah <laughs> County Sheriff. We're finding a couple like him and this guy named Russ Fast, who doesn't even have an IMDb picture, but has been in like 13 of the movies that we've done. Just like a working Portland actor that shows up in all of this stuff during the 80s and 90s. Do you remember in The Incredibles, there's this scene where, I forget exactly what time, there's like an action sequence happening. And they, um, is it The Incredibles? I think it's The Incredibles, where it's a Brad Bird movie, so... But I think it's The Incredibles where there's an action scene happening and then they cut to these two old guys, sort of these Statler and Waldorf types that are on the sidewalk. And they're commenting on this action and one of them is just like, oh, he did that old school. And the other one says, well, there's no school like the old school. And and it turn, and they're animated characters, obviously, but it's, it turns out that that is a – they are meant to – they're stand-ins for two real-life animators from – Disney animators from a long time ago and Brad Bird – was a big fan of theirs and so okay. he like he inserted their likenesses into them you know and you, like you wouldn't know it unless he pointed it out but he's like he's like oh these two old guys commenting they're meant to be these two disney animators that i loved growing up there's a scene in pigs versus the freaks where uh i think it's like a patrick swayze scene and he he gets in his car and he roars off and then there's these two old guys yeah. that walk by the camera <laughs> And one of them is saying, uh, you know, something, something. And the other one says, well, that's the power of youth. And then they laugh and they keep walking. And I was like, that is not an accident. Like, the, yeah. I went online and I was like, is one of these guys Ken Kesey? Is one of these guys? And I couldn't find it. But I, I couldn't find They that, have to be Because I noticed that and then tried to look in the credits. I because one of anything. the guys looks exactly like... Uh, <laughs> Brian Kidd's dad. And oh, so funny. I I pulled in Nick. I was like, look. It's, and I so I replayed that scene for for that, but I couldn't find anything. That's amazing that, that that whoever that was was so magnetic that all three of us clocked yeah. that in this movie that I could barely well, and plus pay the, attention the to. The thing with the TV movie is there's no unnecessary dialogue. Oh it's, no, because no... you have to pay extra. Well, and also it's just like we got it like moving along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. it's like they got a remote control. You got to keep them in, you know, so you can't meander. It's there's no you know there's no I, moment of quiet reflection it's like next scene and so that these two characters who have nothing to do with the plot are given 15 seconds of screen time i was like this is not an accident like nothing on tv happens by accident uh, no and so i wondered if that first if that was kurt hansen because he was mm. listed but he kurt hansen was the fbi agent so so i am guessing that, that they're counterculture figures from the northwest that i was trying to figure well out who they, because you know because kesey's farm was in eugene so uh, you know and a lot of the um uh, uh the um the the merry pranksters you know what was the name there, of his so. bus further Dang it, because I was at a trivia night with Brian at the Unipiper in Silverton, and there was a question about what his bus was was named. And the only thing I could remember about Kim Kesey was the electric it has a trip. I'm like, but that's a book, not his bus. Yeah, so it's so we yeah, got that wrong. Um, so I don't know. So if anybody out there sort of knows who those guys are, who they're supposed to be, um, I because it's yeah, it was kind of that I. At some point, I was like, I have to close my computer and go to bed. I can't spend all night trying to figure out who that guy is. <laughs> I did love one of the montages included. It was almost the scene out of Naked Gun where it was the three-way date. It was the girl. So one of the teenage girls in this, her boyfriend is the one that fled to Canada. So in the meantime, she has started to date other guy from town. 
now they're all together, but they're like all going on a like let's. F- it was a, f- a full day of frolicking. They frolicked in a field, in like a running field, through a field, through the woods with frisbees, arm and arm, arm around like the girl in the middle like, with her arm around. I was like, is this like, a, another thruple movie that we absolutely a thruple movie stumbled into on this podcast? Well, because they do, and because it's also she was dating Adam Baldwin's character before he ran to Canada, and now she's with the football, uh, the 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 hippie football quarterback. Right. And who is the, the, the chief, police yeah. chief's son? And yeah, and so then like so, her and the two guys are like, and and I was and I thought I, I thought the same thing. I was like, oh, is this like a between the lines, like love the one you're with, man, <laughs> or are they just like all getting it on together, like out in a field because it's like because they're hippies and, they're and hippies, that's what right they now. do. I found I found the hippie house and the hippies themselves so <laughs> revolting, yeah, and so grass. So I said at the beginning, I didn't know who to root for in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, well, I wanted them to both lose. <laughs> well, and poor Stephen First, who's a really talented actor. Yeah, but they're just like, hey, uh, so remember Animal? It was Chris Farley directing. Remember Animal House? Well, and it's that was great, and it's that thing of like, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I don't want to like pull apart the accuracy of this film or whatever, but it's, but it's just you know because of the, because he's as the a person of size, they're just like, okay, so you're going to be the guy who eats all the time and yeah. is constantly stoned and is a bumbling fool. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's uh, obviously everybody in this movie is sort of a stereotype to some degree or other, but it's, I, I mean, that's a, that's a guy who can really act. I mean, not that the rest of them can, but I was like, even then he must've well, been like, just I guess to- I have to do Totally. This. It didn't really work either, but yeah. I guess maybe this was the element to appeal to the younger kids. Well, or right. to, or to the parents who want to see their stereotypes about hippies confirmed. Yeah. That's I mean, true that was, too. The, that was the thing. The, his, yeah. And you know the the police arrive at the house, and so he takes his two pounds of weed <laughs> and starts chopping it up and and Which clogging the toilet with it. Hay, by the way, <laughs> it was a it was bale like alfalfa. Of, <laughs> I hundred percent. It had a sickle still attached to it where <laughs> I, I had just cleared it. I actually wrote down here. Pot smokers must be the easiest drug buyers to swindle. <laughs> totally. <laughs> like, because if you're dealing to a guy who's already just baked out of his brain, you know, he be, this doesn't look like pot. It is. Get out. Yeah. You know? yeah. So he's on the second floor up there uh, trying to flush it down the toilet, and the cop is out on the driveway a thousand yards away, and he goes, what is up with your toilet up there? <laughs> he was like, what? He is very in tune with his surroundings. It is interesting. I don't think they say, maybe they do and I missed it, but I, I feel like they don't say the word marijuana. They, they only do once li- later. It, they don't Okay. They don't call that marijuana at the time. They're, they're like, you're do not they allowed say to pot? do... You're not how oh, they might. Well, because they say because I was kind of surprised that they were showing that like on TV well, as well. Again, this is the thing of where I it's it, my memory of that era because I was only, you know, like eight or nine when this came out originally. So it's hard to say. I can't quite say, but it's possible. It's possible that either a they never discussed drugs on television or that they discussed them a lot more because, again, it was like the sort of all in the family era. Right. But at one early on, he says, like, why don't you finish that roach? And then later and then Stephen first character is like. Hey man, I need a little fire. Oh, and then okay. there's they something. just danced around it. Yeah, yeah, so they may have said marijuana once, but they just sort of, I mean, which is weird because it's like it's on the screen, like they, you know what it is. Yeah, it, they didn't they didn't ever connect the word marijuana with to the thing. The, to the thing. Uh when they talked about marijuana later, it was in a list of things he's oh, not allowed oh, to okay. do or something. It wasn't in reference to the But the when he try try and I know poor Stephen first trying to prop this movie up on his poor back by <laughs> comically like trying to get rid of it but like he it is like a bale a wrapped cellophane bale of marijuana that he's trying to throw in the toilet and he's like comically getting it 
all over the bathroom. Like right. it's too hard. It's like an infomercial of like Tupperware. How often out does of this happen to you? Exactly. And it's like <laughs> flying everywhere. And just like, yeah, it was just hay that he was trying to like put in the toilet. It was so funny. Also, I feel like you can tell when you get some distance from movies like this or really any film, you can tell what society I mean, regardless of what society claims at any given moment, they are actually concerned about. You know, there's there's what society purports to care about and what society like really cares about. Yeah. And those two things are often not the same. But with distance, you can tell. You can tell like, oh, well, this is just a thing they claimed to be worried about, where whereas they really weren't. And so you can, I feel like whether, again, whether it's intentional or not, um, and it is worth noting that the guy who wrote this movie co-wrote Top Gun. So... <laughs> I'm not making what? that up. No. I am not making that up. No. I am not making that up. So, so what, I don't did know. Did he write anything else of note? Oh, no. He's written. He wrote uh, Legal Eagles. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, he wrote Secret of My Success. I remember Legal Eagles because the one time I visited Universal Studios, they have like the big uh, actual um, studio spaces, like the big warehouses or whatever, and they would paint on the side of them whatever was coming out that season or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I just remember this gigantic warehouse-sized mural of legal eagles yeah. for some reason. <laughs> Which is a terrible film. Yeah. But he, I mean, he's written, I mean, he's written a lot of movies and I'll a lot of hit movies. Here, yeah. um, I mean, they're all really kind of mainstream fare. Like he's not, you well, know, yeah. he doesn't seem like a really groundbreaking Well, that's writer. why I guess, I guess I shouldn't be surprised because like everyone else in this movie has been in amazing things yeah. too like Brian Dennehy, Patrick Sweet, like all of these people have done like really, really awesome work. You know, and Top Gun is the definitive like, I, I mean, it's, I don't want to engender hate or I'm just saying like, Top Gun's not like a great movie. It's it's a it's an entertaining movie. It's it, an entertaining yes. mainstream movie meant to meant to appeal to the widest possible audience. And a lot of his movies are like that. So he went on to have like a really long screenwriting career. So I I don't but the fact that he co-wrote Top Gun. Dick Tracy. Yeah, so it's hard to Anaconda. say. Anaconda. Right? That's wow. what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying it's like this guy like Turner and Hooch. Not a joke. The secret of my success, Legal Eagles Top Guns. So, he did Top Gun immediately after pig pigs versus he what kind of trajectory <laughs> so this an is episode of hawaii 50 one episode of kojak in 1976 then in 1982 pigs versus freaks then top gun well he does seem to have an affinity for the law and cops in his movies though because turner and hooch right. and legal eagles and the um, flintstones and viva la rock sure, of course <laughs> anna honda's the hunt for the blood orchid but it's it's hard to get a sense of his personal politics which again i think is owes a lot to that era right. where it's like it doesn't matter what my politics are i gotta write what sells um and so uh it's interesting you can look now at this movie at pigs versus freaks and see what society uh truly secretly views as harmless whatever they're whatever they're saying and so you can tell that even then people on some level knew that like marijuana was essentially harmless or is certainly not harmful in any of the ways that were being presented to us because otherwise they would like, there's no version of this movie where it's cocaine or it's heroin because, because that, because, you know, certainly heroin, that's one of those things where that isn't, you know, too many people. And I think, you know, the evidence bears out that that is an unalloyed harm, you know, in most circumstances and, you know, and, but marijuana, like they made this like an ongoing sort of joke. And so you can, even then they were like, Yes, it's bad for you, but not really. Also, uh, you know the fact that, I mean, there's this moment in a movie that only says marijuana once and is really doesn't have any profanity. There's a lot of like fake TV profanity, yeah. you know, where it's like, why are you getting all jazzed off at me or whatever? <laughs> and yet there's a scene 
where more than one actually where uh, where the deputy chief of police is like making a business arrangement with two prostitutes <laughs> And where Stephen first inexplicably climbs into the crowd during the football game and starts to like right. sexually harass a woman sitting there. But it's like, but it's like there's, it was totally acceptable in this yeah. film to a show two pounds of of pot on a table and also for like these you know these like these two sex workers and this cop to be making a business deal and it's like sort of a wah, wah, and it's because like on some level we all know like these these are not real crimes yeah yeah right. the other writer of this movie there's two writers for it and he seems his uh is not his trajectory was different i think it started before because he was doing some bonanza and lou <laughs> lou grant the spinoff and then um uh, where did it go? Di- some episodes of Diagnosis, Murder, and Silk Stockings. Yeah. Uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Baywatch Nights. Boom. And Walker, Texas Ranger. 32 episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger. So, huh, I mean, that's I mean, if you can, that's good work if you can get it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is. You can Especially get... since I imagine that's a show that still is airing in oh, yeah. somewhere oh, yeah. because oh, yeah. it is. It's this but with Chuck Norris and like in the West or wherever. Well, it's like, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I think, uh, I think uh, the, the writer director, Paul Haggis is in the news for, for different reasons recently, but uh, he, you know, I mean, that guy wrote, I think two different films that one best picture, uh, you know, and he's like a really accomplished screenwriter. And yet, because he wrote an early, he didn't even write the script. He like wrote a treatment for the pilot oh. of Walker Texas Ranger. Oh wow! Which his friend, friends like, hey, can you get me a hand with this? And he like he knocked out like an outline yeah. for the pilot, and it's made him more money than anything else he's ever done. Just, if you are, I didn't realize that anyone who is like, if you're the director or or, or the writer or the, one of the producers, and if you if your name appears on the pilot, then f- you get forever residuals oh, yeah. for anything that show ever does, oh. whether or not you. You know, so James Burroughs, who directed Cheers and 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 Frasier and Friends and all of that, like every single great sitcom of the eighties and stuff like that, he was always the the first director of those. So he's got to be swimming in it. Well, that is why I mean to tie this all back to current events. That's why I mean this isn't what this is. This isn't what the strike is sort of about. But that's I mean that's why there's I mean the you know the Writers Guild. There's like all of these like labyrinthine. You know rules about on-screen credit and who can be credited yep. and who what you have to do to what threshold you have to pass to be credited because there's you know there's not just exposure but there's a lot of money at stake with yeah. that sort of stuff and especially back then when it was just like you know I mean it's amazing how many of these people's names I don't know and yet I know their faces like my own because it's like if you like lucked into just being a character actor or a director or a writer on you know it's like you were in the NBC Rolodex for life yeah which is just sort of amazing yeah um let's see. Uh, I don't know if I have anything else like on this particular tip. I will say this. So I, I wrote down Tony fucking Randall. <laughs> Tony Randall? <laughs> Which, first of all, he must have loved this role. I mean, he must have See, had more I was, fun. I was going back and forth. This is either something that he had so much fun doing or he was like, this is what my, I'm, I'm Tony Randall. Like, <laughs> what am I, what am I doing here? I, I, but I mean, have you, I mean, I have to admit, I'm not... I, Tony Randall. Two two things. One, I mean, this is, I think, a generational thing because the, the, one of the reasons that the Tony, I will say that I laughed 
genuinely because you can't lie to yourself you can lie to other people but you can't lie to yourself about what you find funny right. especially if you if you involuntarily laugh out loud if something right. happens you know if you see somebody whatever <laughs> slips on a banana peel and you laugh it's like you may you may claim later by the way it's not a, funny a four-year-old but... in my sunday school this morning was doing stuff over by the kitchen stuff and then brought over with like one of the fake bananas and he goes i'm gonna eat the banana and I'm going to throw it on the ground and you're going to slip on the peel. And I was like, you're right. That's right, I am. <laughs> it was so funny. just come preloaded with that knowledge I about think the banana so. peel? Four. But it's like if you laugh out loud at something, you know, without like reflexively, like what you find it funny. There's yeah. no getting around right. it. I laughed out loud at almost every single line Tony Randall had in this movie. <laughs> Should we I play mean, some Tony Randall? Genuinely. And. And I think a lot of that is maybe 90% of it is the fact that like he brings his persona with him yeah. and he brings all of this sort of baggage, not in a bad way, but just in a neutral way in that he always kind of plays the same, you know, it's a little bit like, um, I'm trying to think of, of who else I could sort of, but there, you know, other people that play the same kind of character. And so when you see them in a vastly different role, it has all this extra weight and punch to it. It took me a minute to figure out that's, t- that's Tony, Randall. Tony Randall. It's just, yep. so I'm guessing because this is all to say that I'm not that familiar. It's like I know I'm, I'm so familiar with Tony Randall and that he exists and is an actor. But if I had to list like his filmography beyond The Odd Couple, yeah, I, I run I aground pretty quickly. But I feel like I've seen him everywhere. But his persona is so entrenched. Yeah. And it's so that he's, you know, he's so like sort Prim of... Prim and pro- kind of a Bob Newharty. Exactly. He's very sort of type A. Speaking of references that are for people <laughs> 50 and older. And he's and he's very meticulous and prim yeah. and you said is very yeah. reserved and sort of, you know, and kind of tight-ass. Frasier-esque, yeah, but I Frasier's a good comparison, yeah. but he's just very sort of cinched up. And so the fact that he just can like let loose in this, he must... Because I would imagine that, you know, he has his own kind of typecasting. Yeah. And when yeah, you can just kind of go against type and just be like big and, big and broad yeah. as you want... Yeah. And let me see if I've got. So all of their montage football practices for the hippies have been all this hippie nonsense. The last practice. Your aura has been balanced. Your karma has been purified. Let's do it. And (laughs) and like later when because it's the sort of the the gag is that he's an insurance salesman named Leon I think who then has become this guy named uh, Rambala Organimus which is my (laughs) Wu Tang name and. And so he's very, and so he is simultaneously, well, I guess I can just do this now. He's, uh, so he is meant to be, I think, a direct comparison to uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was in the public consciousness because- The Beatles. Things happen slower then. So if something was a news article, news story, it was a news story for like a decade. Yeah. And so he he had become famous because of the Beatles and was always always seemed to be surrounded by a lot of you know young, often female followers. And so Tony Randall's clearly riffing on that. But here's another thing that strikes me as kind of subversive. So Tony Randall, so he's this insurance salesman named Leon who then becomes this meditation guru named Organimus. And who has all of these uh, sort of a youngish, you know, uh, these women who are, I don't know, like in their late teens, early 20s. Let's hope. Yes. Who are, <laughs> who are like the, all of his disciples are these, these young women. And so that sort of struck out to me, too, because it's A, it's a comment on the Maharishi thing. But it also seems like a not too subtle Charles Manson reference. Yeah. Oh. Because there's a scene when he goes to the city council meeting. And he walks into the city council meeting to speak on, you know, on behalf of the football or the freaks or whatever. And all of his, you know, these are like these like young women who are his followers. They all follow him in and they're doing this like chanting thing, which is exactly what That's all the Manson true. girls did during the Manson trial, where 
Charlie would go to court in the morning and the Manta girls would all either go in or they would sit out on the sidewalk and they would do this chanting and they would laugh and smile and kind of scare the holy fuck out of everybody. And there's a lot of that, you know, uh, there's a lot of that happening here too, which is kind of a little uh, sharper than I expected. Yeah. The, I, I do wish there was a couple of the fr- uh, the freaks in the uh, courtroom scene that were wearing shirts that had words printed on them like this old 70s or 80s iron on where it's just a phrase that you had in block letters but they were also wearing jackets and so you never got you can see that there was something written but never enough to know what it was and i was so irritated that i was like come on take off that jacket this there is that's actually where some of the anachronisms uh, sort of leapt out to me uh, in, in not so much with the cops because i think it's, i think we've established it's like you could take the cops from this movie and drop them into any any movie from any era yeah you know uh and and i mean i mean like the brian denny cop is the brian denny cop it doesn't matter where or when you are um some of the anachronisms though they were mostly on the kind of hippie you know freak side and it's this is again makes me wonder about the screenwriter's politics and whether this is accidental or intentional because at one point you were talking about the shirt and at one point there is um there's uh they're showing the stands during the game and presumably the all the people rooting for the the pigs the cops are on one side and all the people rooting for the hippies the freaks are on the other side and they show the section of the audience that is rooting for the freaks and so it's all hippies and they're all holding up signs and most of them are not about foot most of them are like legalized spiritual enlightenment man but there's somebody in the stands a hippie holding up a sign that says peace with honor now here's the thing a, peace with honor was a phrase that it was invented in 1973, so five years after this movie is set. And also, peace with honor was Richard Nixon's phrase. <laughs> that was his thing, because that was his whole thing about, they're like, end the Vietnam War. And he's like, well, I, you know, we all want peace, but we need peace with honor, which was code for, like, we're going to stay there until it gets me a second term. Oh, I didn't know that. That was, they're like, why don't we, you know, why don't we just leave Vietnam now? And he's like, well, no, 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 because we have to have peace with honor, so we're not going to slink away. So peace with honor was a phrase that Richard Nixon rolled out in July of 1973. Wow. So it's not only anachronistic, it's also from the other side of the political I did spectrum. think this was made a little bit later. I thought this took place in the early 70s, but I guess it wasn't, because that for some reason it seemed like that guy had been gone for longer or something like that i mean if we pin it to the graduate thing it's 68 but it's like but it's certainly not 73 so so again so they're also like holding up a nixon slogan and there's a scene earlier where stephen first character he's uh i think it's a it's like a, a cop car or something and he's sticking a bumper sticker on the side of it he's like vandalizing it and the bumper sticker says pow's never have a nice day so that also comes from the 70s, and that is also from the Nixon administration. <laughs> the Nixon administration de facto created, you know, that POW MIA flag. Yeah. And that is a de facto creation of the Nixon administration, and it was another way to prolong the Vietnam War. Interesting. Right? And so it's so I wonder if that was he, if the screenwriter was just And then not he was putting on familiar. another bumper sticker, fund the EPA. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I just, it's, I don't know if it's like if he was, if the screenwriter was unclear about That's this or if he funny. was like, or if he was like, if that was his own kind of subversion, he's yeah. like, I'm going to have the hippies waving the sign, but it's really a Nixon slogan. Yeah. Cause I do mm. feel like, like what you were saying, these people, even though the content they come up with is middle ground, you know, not too smart, not too dumb, blah, blah, blah. These people are generally, you have to be fairly smart to do that, to know where those lines are and to know yeah. what's acceptable. So it wouldn't surprise me, especially in creative frustration for them to be 
doing it even as jokes for themselves or whatever because they're like who's gonna, next week no one will remember this exists until 36 years and then they will be talking about this on a podcast i mean it's just and it's entirely possible that like he wrote a first draft and the network's like good enough yeah you know it's just <laughs> like great. he's like no i need to write it together no, 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 no oops good. we already made the movie yeah <laughs> we're actually already filming so we need this i wonder what so the each team the the pigs team has a bunch of ringers which are like um um i forget what they call them uh, the not they're not police officers right reserve. now, but they're reserve. reserve yeah, and so like people, these older men that had played football before, so they get they bring on a bunch of ringers. One of them, which is named Chow Chow Gedrakowski. Sure. What? Okay. Chow Chow. I mean the, those. I mean those are names that don't. You don't really see those as going together Chow, a lot. Chow on Chow Gedrakowski. Yeah. That is <laughs> wild. I mean, I is that uh, is that a reference to? It, I right. that's what I wonder too. Either, I have no sports knowledge. Maybe I mean, it's a, either like a reference to like maybe it's meant to be a play on a on an actual right, real life football player. Yeah. yeah. Well, also Show the whole deal of them getting a ringer, like that is clearly lifted from the movie Mash, um, oh. which uh, where there's a ringer whose name I will not utter on this podcast, uh, <laughs> but who is who is recruited to you know, and he's just and he's like an NFL player. Okay. Um, and. I, which does actually that shows confuse me because the, the TV version because sometimes it had a laugh track and sometimes it didn't yes and that scared me as a kid it was there, too serious they also the hippies get their own ringer because they get um um uh they get this They're, athlete who's just been like he's I think he's been expelled from college or he's been he's flunked out or something is what I is think the, he's he's in danger of flunking out because he's practicing football too hard and, and not, so they yeah. they make a deal where he gets a tutor a cute girl tutor and I like this. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, but they offer him a woman in exchange for being uh, well. And part, one of the, of the team, the sales pitch of the of the freak that's trying to recruit him is like, "Oh, here's what we'll give you: like twenty hours of relentless practice a day." And I'm like, "What a nightmare!" But it was so it was so that he would still be in shape for when he got back onto the football team when his grades did better. Yeah. So they did recruit, and, recruit that guy. Yeah. So like they so the cop team, they recruit these two guys from the, from the reserve. And then, uh, yeah. And then the hippies re- recruit this, this guy who's, just, you know, in danger of flunking out of college or something. And, and it and does. The guy that, that escaped to Canada. And, oh yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So both of them. That's true. And, and it is interesting to me. And I don't know, again, it's like, it's hard to tell if this is just happenstance or if this is, I, I, you know, or I don't want to read too much into the intention of the filmmaker here. But it's worth noting that because it, unless I'm unless I'm misremembering that I do believe that 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 guy, the college football player, I believe he is the lone black player yeah. on the team, and he's depicted as totally apolitical. <laughs> oh, His only motivation is like this female football. tutor and also like football. Like he has no interest in the political process. <laughs> he has no character. In, yeah, yeah, in 1968. <laughs> There's yeah. no reason <laughs> going on. he would have no engagement with the political, <laughs> you know, situation in America. None. Yeah. And so Tony Randall, as the as the coach of the team, is leading these sessions that are very, you know, non-normal for for meditating, meditating, and chanting Om and everything. And and that you know that black character does go. This is the worst, the weirdest practice I've ever been to. Yeah. <laughs> Here, the thing about the uh, about when about when uh, uh, like the Tony Randall who Tony Randall like so his character is like an insurance agent who becomes this like meditation guru, but then during the game, he suddenly is just like 
You know, he at actually at one point says like he they're doing a chanting thing, and then it ends with "Kill the pigs." I was like, "Wow, <laughs> so, that's pretty strong." Yeah, during so they're all their all their practices have been yeah the chanting and the ohms and stuff like that. But then they're behind at halftime, and then he breaks into this the stereotypical coach of like we need to kick their ass or what you know whatever version of that. Yeah. And then, you know, on the field, he, he says something like, okay, now we're capitalists. Let's <laughs> kill the pigs. <laughs> the uh, the idea of him, like, leading the team in this sort of chanting because they're holding hands and they're chanting. It's two things jump out at me about that. One is, in a strange way, that uh, pre, pre, pre-sages, pre prefigures, pre- Dates? Predates. Well, it's a it's a sort of uh, it's uh, it's a uh, insert your own word. Insert the correct. I word think presage is what. Uh, you know the idea because that's the thing that Phil Jackson famously did with the Chicago Bulls, where he was he, he used Zen teachings oh, and all right. of these things that you would think athletes would reject as just being weird or being sort of hippy trippy or whatever. And it's but Phil Jackson did a lot of those Zen things, and everybody like laughed and you know and, and you know. But then once they started winning, you know, championships, everybody sort of adopted yeah. that. But also the idea of because it happens in the city council meeting too where the uh organimus the tony randall character is sort of um he's everything's kind of getting out of hand in the meeting and it's you know, voices are being raised and he tries to instill calm by just beginning to chant ohm in the middle of this which actually happened in the chicago seven trial where there's just you know that like the prosecutors are screaming at the defendants the defendants are screaming at the judge and everything is anarchy and then alan ginsburg who was there testifying on the stand just Try like leans into the microphone and just starts going um in the middle of this trial as everything is descending into bedlam. So I think that might be a reference to that. Wow! Wow! For future, we'll have to have you on uh, the Mark and Toddcast to talk to us about the Chicago trial, the Chicago Seven, because it's not all of my knowledge has been from whatever you've you've said on your radio show fifteen years ago. It's really one of the three (laughs) things I can speak about knowledgeable. (laughs) So at the very end. Uh, they're they're playing the football game, and I, it was kind of neat because I honestly didn't know who was going to win. Usually, it's so projected in a lot of these things. Like, are are they going to save the community center? Or um, I wrote this down: genuinely unpredictable outcome. Yeah, yep. and then it turns out that there are two FBI agents out there to get uh, uh, Ricky or whatever his name is, Mickey. Um, Mickey. Mickey. And and but they're going to wait until the end of the game because Patrick Swayze, they find out at halftime and and they tell the pigs and Patrick Swayze's on that team. So Patrick Swayze's like, oh, that's going to look great. We arrest we arrest our opponents instead of being able to beat them. And so they agree to in true sitcom fashion, just continue to play out the game. Um, And so the very last play is is Mickey going uh, long for for a pass but to just keep running because someone's going to meet his, his girlfriend's going to meet him in the field and they're going to drive away or whatever uh, which is a great plan you know the whole team leads to a distraction and so Mickey go- goes running and running and running and running and I get why Mickey keeps running he's trying to escape but his defender keeps <laughs> running after <laughs> running him. after him and they were like uh, they were like in another field like they're no longer on the playing field <laughs> that, the guy just kept chasing I, them that I made me laugh might really be hard because that Patrick was, Swayze knew that the was cops, that defender Patrick Swayze 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay. That and I think he knew then. he was, and he, he and because he actually had figured out, he's like, oh, because the because yeah. the Mickey uh, Adam Baldwin's character Mickey South, he'd like given himself, he was pretending to be from Texas or something. He's like, yeah, my name is or whatever. I'm from Fake Beard Town. Exactly. And but but Swayze's character figured out because he actually trash talks him at one point. He's like he's like, hey, you know, you you know, hope you don't drop the ball looking at those two FBI agents over there behind the bench that are waiting to arrest you. And then what happens? Uh, and then so and he so drops I, the ball. So I think that's why he chases him because okay, it's like he know, he's figured sense. out that he's that he's a draft you know dodger. Okay, or whatever. <laughs> that made me laugh. So I'm like, why does that guy keep running? It's because he's been smoking hay all day. <laughs> so yeah, then there's uh, he he runs out to the VW bus that the girlfriend is driving. Then Patrick Swayze shows up, and the girl driving is is Patrick Swayze's sister, and says does the classic callback to I don't need don't be a cop for a minute I need you to be a big brother and so Patrick steps aside and lets them ride off into wherever they were heading I have to say Patrick Swayze not that this changed later in life but he's a fine looking man That's, <laughs> I mean it's like zero he's body fat strange, on him. even back then he's kind of strange like, and I can't figure out what it is but I just I mean I, it's just one of those people he's like uh, like uh, it was like is it Taron Edgerton is that the yeah oh. where you look at him you're like <laughs> How is it possible that you exist? I, it's just, I mean, the first time I saw it, from Marvel. Yeah, I was just like, are you a real person? I just, are you, have you been created somewhere? This is, you're unbelievable looking. And I mean, it's, again, it's like Patrick Swayze was always handsome. It's like, yeah. I, but it, apparently that just started like from day one. He was just yeah. like, I am the best looking person on the planet. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. No, I don't think no, so. No. I think you're, <laughs> you're the same reaction. Reciting yeah. my, my internal You're in dialogue. Mark's wheelhouse, but I, I can identify because a couple of years ago I was at, I don't know, one of the conventions um, with with the Unipiper at his booth or whatever, and we're always set up next to where all the people sign, come, the actors and stuff like right. that, sign autographs. And so I was a good, I don't know, 50, maybe 100, 100 yards away from Jason Momoa. <laughs> and like, and I, whatever, Jason Momoa, and he walked like 500 feet past me, and I was like, oh. yeah, and I was like, what in the world? <laughs> and I to test, I looked away, and I looked, it was like, oh, <laughs> and like, I he's fine in movie, like I don't care for his movies or like he's whatever, but like in even that dynamism, just in person, charisma is a real thing. It is it crazy, is. and it's sometimes. I think tied to, to physical appearance, but not always. Yeah. But when it's coupled with physical appearance, so it's I unstoppable. I knew somebody who reported uh, from the and charisma Oscars. isn't always tied up with uh, with looks because Donald Trump has a lot of charisma. Well, fair enough. That is a fair point. <laughs> I knew someone who was uh, who reported on the Oscars one year, and he was sort of on the red carpet or something. And he he you know, and of course, it's not a surprise that the Oscars a lot of pretty people walk by. But he said that. The thing that jumped out to him, he said that when uh, Charlize Theron walked by, oh. he said this thing I'll never forget. He said, he said the thing about it is, it's like it's it's you know obviously she's you know very attractive, but he said, but it's it's clearly more than that because he said this is the only person that he said he saw this with when she would walk by. He said people would gasp yeah. at at how sort of attractive she was, and, and he's poised, like, and... but it's like it's clearly there's an intangible <clears throat> element yeah. there. It's yeah. not just. A, a visual thing. Yeah. There's some sort of energy yeah. or some sort of you know What's whatever there. Factor? I I was I was at Disneyland once and we're we're walking by some, and there was this character guy that played a prince, you know, and he was he was like that, and I audibly gasped <laughs> yeah. when I looked over, I'm like, <laughs> I was like, and he he 
saw me and i'm sure that <laughs> like i know that all the time yeah. right? and, but but it, it's true like uh That's, I, yeah I, yeah i mean there are people that they just have that they they have uh, the it factor the, the thing factor. Yeah. wow and then the movie ends, and it's the quick credits, and we get thanked to Willamette University in Salem, Oregon, where they filmed won? this. But who won? Oh, the pigs win. The pigs win. Which I, was... I which I give them credit for, because I figured it was like, yeah. this is going to be a tie. Oh, yeah, sure. Tie. You yeah. know, because then it's yeah. like, a way, you know, we're all right, and we're all, we're all wrong. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah. you know, I see your... And it's as I was getting it to the end of the film, I was... I mean, first of all, like a full third of this movie is this football game. I, I know, like... <laughs> less than nothing about sports uh, my sports knowledge is so non-existent like it can't even be graphed like it's just it's and yet i wrote down so under not so good i wrote down even to me this football game looks fake like it's just i mean it, there's no world i did like the fumble uh, well the football like none of them can catch the yeah. ball and there's like a thing where like a guy like crashes over a bench and it's like you can see him like like slowing down and like bracing himself and then like almost stopping and then just kind of like falling, falling. you know yeah. a little bit forward there was one moment though that I thought might be real and that was when there was like some guy running with a football that just crashed into the cheerleaders and I was like there's <laughs> no way that. that that was practice yeah he bowled them out like yeah. knocked them down <laughs> I did write down yes yeah, so the genuinely predictable uh, unpredictable outcome in terms of who wins and also I, I was actually like okay so is Janice she's the girlfriend I was like is she gonna is she going to go to Canada with Mickey? Is she going to stay with uh, the boyfriend guy in Clear in Clearview? Yeah. Um. And then and then I had all these sort of like, like sub uh, options in my head. I was like, well, maybe they'll split the difference. Like maybe because then it's like, a, is he going to let her go because he knows that she really loves Mickey, or is Mickey going to be like, you should stay here because life in Canada as a draft dodger is hard. Yeah. And then I thought, well, maybe it'll be both. Like the boyfriend will be like, you should go to Canada with Mickey, but then Mickey will be like. You don't want the life that I have. It's terrible. Yeah. You should stay here. And so I like that they actually just made a choice, though. They just had her, like, right. get in the mini bus or whatever. Or, or if she would go, you two are you know, kind, of, <laughs> kind of cute together. <laughs> you know, I had this when we were in the alfalfa field. Uh, and then two other things about the end of this movie. One is I have to – I mean, it's weird. It's, like, strange when you see something um, that – that is surprisingly good you know it's like when you're watching something and again it's not like this movie is the worst thing ever made but it's just sort of mediocre it's yeah. just kind of a, yeah. you know it's yeah. a five out of ten it's fine but occasionally you would see something and you'd be like well that's good and i have to say they do this thing right on the final play where they drop down to slow motion and they lose the score and it's just slow motion with then slow motion breathing and a like boom 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 hard it like a heartbeat which is surprisingly effective yep. yeah i mean it actually like it's not like it redeemed the movie but i was like <laughs> but i was like this works in a weird yeah, way right. plus when they do this is what i would expect from the director of Smokey and the bandit exactly. three exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then when they do the closing credits we were all in the 80s maybe you all can answer this for me what was this fixation on ending with a freeze frame Everything Every, ends with a freeze frame. Music t- videos, TV, TV shows, shows, movies. It all ends with like John Candy turning, like holding up his hand to the camera, and you un- think, Uncle Buck freezes. Do you think that was all? Can all be traced back? And I don't even know if that movie ends like that. Now that I'm thinking of it, and it wouldn't. I guess American Graffiti. I'm thinking of is that? That's not a no, freeze frame. No, because it ends a, with a where are they tell, now? Yeah, where are they now? Yeah. Oh, that's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> and all the uh, yeah. Top Gun movies where they end in 
he's holding the freeze frame, but he's not actually free. Uh, yeah. And he starts moving. <laughs> Top secret, you're thinking. Top of. secret. Yeah. Top secret. It's just that there was, I, it's some, I mean, and that makes me wonder about what are we, like, what's the equivalent of that now squad, that we're not going to notice for 20 years? Yeah. Like, in 20 years, they're going to be like, what was the deal in the 2020s when every movie, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Every movie had these endless drone shots or whatever. Drone drone openings are one of those things. Or, yeah. like, all on-screen Chiron. Like, all on-screen text had to be in giant block white font that fills the entire screen yeah but but so now it's uh, but in the 80s it was like everything just ended with a freeze frame and so it's interesting i wonder like where that came from what what's the um the union movie with sally field uh norma ray norma ray does that end with her the breakfast club definitely ends like that was that before or after this i don't know uh the breakfast club ends that way i will say that norma ray was also profiled in that same tv guide that i uh, oh wow oh interesting so just fyi nice um now more relevant than ever uh let's see if i have anything else here that sort of uh ties into the end uh, speaking about the end of the film so there's this moment toward the end of the game and again the sort of like the the guy who's the coach for the police team is also the chief and his daughter is this sort of like um, like flower child, like in training, you know, because yeah, I, I forget yeah. how old she is. She's just like a yeah, youngish like teenager. And there's like a scene that's a little bit weird where she like comes to the table and he's obviously he's sort of comically like annoyed at her like desire to be like a hippie flower child. And she comes out to the table like in sort of like laugh in body paint and it. <laughs> Which includes like flowers drawn on her back, and it's like, well, who drew the flowers on her back? <laughs> Where she didn't do that herself. There's no answer that's good for that. <laughs> and it was like some Brian Krakow guy in the neighborhood. It's just like, I can do that for you. But, oh, Brian Krakow. But but toward the end of the game, there's a scene where like it shows the the police chief coach on the sideline, and he's you know like defense or whatever he's shouting, and he, and then suddenly from off screen, like there's this shower of flower petals. And he looks over, and it's his his teenage daughter who has thrown these flower petals at him. And there's this thing that I found surprising, and I have to say, authentically kind of sweet, where he pauses, and then he kind of smiles, and he hugs her. Yeah. And it didn't seem cloying or fake. It seemed kind of genuine. Yeah. And yeah. also seemed like a thing that, if you made this movie now, would not be in the film. It seems, or maybe it would, I don't know. It did, But it, it struck me as, like, it, it felt like an authentic human moment yeah. in that it was like the moment where they kind of stopped being caricatures and it they sort of responded real. yeah it was exactly. true story <laughs> but i mean i think that's a testament like I, we keep going back to like all of these actors which have been in a million things and great in a million things can elevate little tiny moments like that so yeah. it feels like it's bigger and better than than what it is at the base of it so uh, I think the only other things I really have here is we touched on this before, but there's these two competing music approaches. There's the diegetic music, which is like when they're listening to the, you know, they're listening to uh, the radio in the car they're in. Well, because the... they're in the van at one point, they're listening to the sounds of silence okay. by Simon and Garfunkel. And then <clears throat> and this is sometimes what I think of as uh, like uh, the Spike Lee uh, dynamic because Spike Lee sometimes runs into this and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes in these movies, like some of the music would be diegetic and it's sort of it's sort of appropriate for the setting and then whatever and then and then like an Aaron Copeland score will just like blare in <laughs> and sometimes that works but sometimes it's like a weird clash and in this movie it is like they couldn't quite decide again I think it comes back to trying to appeal to the widest possible right. audience because it's like we're gonna have the Simon and Garfunkel for the kids and then this like unbelievably corny like NBC studio orchestra score 
for that just right. blares in. I mean, it was yeah, the opening like to step by step or something like that. It's the music in this, the... and it just and it ends every scene with like a yeah, yeah, and you know, it's just that ages that has aged so badly, yeah. Yeah. so badly. Well, and just to pace things around television commercials too makes things strange. that's true because there's like the weird sort of act outs <laughs> where they've got to like you know and... you have to wrap up enough that you feel like a chapter is finished but not go too far um i think let's see i think i've only got two other i think maybe i've only got two other things here uh one is and this is i mean this is just my own observation but i actually had to go online so the the uh, the actor who plays janice she's the girlfriend who goes to canada at the end her name is penny Pizer, Pizer, p-e-y-s-e-r but for the longest time it's that thing of like is that Gina Davis? No, no, she's oh. not tall enough. And then I was like, is that Heather Langenkamp who plays Nancy in the Nightmare Nightmare on Elm Street? And it's not. But if you go back and look at the actor, Penny Pizer, if you look at her in, in this movie, and then in your head, you cross Gina Davis with Heather Langenkamp from Nightmare <laughs> on Elm Street, you will get this actor. She looks like a perfect, she looks like a perfect blend yeah, of those two people. That. It's unbelievable. That's yeah, I think that uh, I think maybe that's I don't know that I have anything else here. That might be it. If my my quote uh, thoughts on this uh, on this movie, it is interesting to note that Adam Baldwin, who played uh, yeah. Mickey South, Mickey North, Mickey South. South. Um, so in this movie, from he's the north. from the north. I was gonna say that doesn't make sense. I guess. So he's a draft dodger, and then he's playing in the hippie team. In real life, Adam Baldwin, I think, is is extremely conservative. Oh, funny. And he's an extremely conservative person. Maybe uh, this changed politically. him. He saw the Brian Dennehy scene about what <laughs> authoritarianship should be, and he changed his... You know, they've got some real points here. Um, <laughs> the, and also that um, uh, in terms of things that may or may not be a reference... So there's the uh, you know there's the, the reference to the the MX missile I think and then there's this sort of reference to the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi but also there's a scene where I think the mayor is talking to Brian Dennehy and he says um, says well let the blood be upon your head which is also which is like strangely like Shakespearean <laughs> yes. for one thing I mean who talks like that <laughs> also I think now I can't swear to this but I think that might be a little bit of a reference to so there's this. There was this um, uh, this thing that happened in Berkeley in 1969, I think, uh, called the People's Park Protest, where it was, it was like this gigantic like mobilization of, of youths, and then the police were going to go in and like crack some skulls. And Ronald Reagan, who was the governor of California at that time, he actually said, let's see if I wrote this down correctly, uh, Reagan actually said something like, if it takes a bloodbath, let's get it over with. <laughs> which he said on camera at a press conference oh my lord so i don't know if that's a reference to that but it is wow it's like some weird biblical stuff there that's yeah. like uh you know it was like let us now break the seventh let seal it, and let the know. apocalypse rain down on them exactly that is i mean so quickly <laughs> anyway it is uh don't let it drag wow. out it is strange how uh, you know how a couple of the scenes from this movie I, I wish I could talk to my own brain and get an answer and ask, like, why did you remember? What about this stuck yeah. with you? It's just I have no explanation yeah. unless it's just that, like, I was so young I hadn't really watched enough to fill up that, my brain. The, the kind of reverse equivalent is, and this will happen, like, I'm trying to fall asleep or, like, just I'm doing something random during the day. And it will be something that you haven't thought of for any reason for 25 years. They're like, remember the house is three down from your friend? Right. What? No. What? <laughs> I was doing. I was doing the dishes one night, and all of a sudden, my brain was like Darva Conger. I was like, what? Wait. 
Darva Conger. Why does that sound familiar? I was familiar? like, I said to myself, why does that sound familiar? Darva Conger. <laughs> she was on Who Wants to Marry uh, a Multimillionaire. Oh, she I was, never would have come up with that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, but why are we saying this? Why do the I remember reason. that name? Though? Exactly. It's right. all the same. I mean, that's like, uh, that is, I mean, Darva Conger. Because then she got embroiled, but anyway, it's a whole diet. Anyway, that was the conversation I had to myself. It's, Why am I thinking about this? What are you doing? Please stop. Well, it is. I mean, well, that is the so that is the oral or textual equivalent to that's the nomenclatural equivalent to I know that guy's face. Where do I know him from? Yeah. It's like I know that name, but it's like I, you you could have locked me in a room yeah. with a pencil and a pad for a thousand years, and I never would have come up with that. Yeah. Right? And why? Why am I thinking about it? Why now? What triggered? <laughs> Anyway, anyway, well, that was a lot of thoughts on the pigs versus the freaks. So I, if you if you are a fan <laughs> of this movie and you are constantly scouring the internet for other people talking about it, you here we are are welcome. So well, thank you, Rick, for joining us on that. Um, yes, anything. I, uh, where can people go to buy your? Um, I forget if I told you this. I listened to the audio version of your of uh, book Alice? of Unmask Alice uh, last summer, and I was driving through. Salt Lake and uh, all of that as I was listening uh, to all those parts that uh, was just because you were talking about the hills yeah. and I was like oh there they are <laughs> there they are right now Tony Randall um, uh, the audio and I can say this because I didn't do it the audio version of the book is fantastic it's really uh, good yeah. so, I was I was a little bit afraid because I know there's not time hopping but there's a little bit of back end timeline and, jumps around a little bit which it's gets tricky in audiobooks but I even I was able to, to follow it so uh, uh, her, it was good her name is Gabber Zachman she's uh, uh, you know voice uh, voice actor and audiobook narrator she did a fantastic job she was I mean it would be like why didn't you narrate it? it's like listen to her do it yeah that's why I didn't narrate it because she knocked it out of the park. yeah she um, was awesome uh, yeah so unmask Alice uh, LSD satanic panic and the imposter behind the world's most notorious diaries is available as they say wherever you buy books you can find out more just go to Rick Emerson uh, dot com and um, yeah and uh, and follow uh, you on Instagram sure or, or and do that I guess if you like <laughs> I mean don't expect to see anything follow you on TikTok <laughs> sure <laughs> that's that's actually oh, you probably have to make accounts for everything though just to I don't uh, I mean I mean not have to but at least well it's that I did I used to be that way where it's like there's there's some new I better make a Mastodon account right now in case somebody else or whatever <laughs> at rumble.com yeah I but I you know I'm actually not at the point where it's like I just I just don't I just don't care okay. I just don't I mean it's like well, I, have, I didn't know if like, it's something that like the PR people were like you have to have a place I, on all of these uh, well they were I I mean, so the, I will say this: that the the because uh, I have like a, a like a Twitter X whatever it is uh, uh, account, which it's just as a side note, it's like it is interesting to see that. I, I mean, I don't want to go the whole thing. Just to like just mentioning Twitter and X, and what is the consensus now? Do people still say Twitter? Is this like where we just I called call them prints the whole time? I, I yeah. call it X Twitter. Yeah. Okay, X Twitter. Um, Twitter. That eh, doesn't matter. It used to be Twitter. I just it's X you know, Twitter. It's. Anyway, so I, I'm on whatever that is, and okay. then and then Instagram and, and something. But um, cool. but my publisher's on because there's a thing inevitably called Book Talk. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. so because I was just like, you know, it's a huge thing. I think I think I said at one point when the book was getting ready to come out, I was like, I was like, if you really, really, really want me to create a TikTok account, 
you know, I was like, but here's the thing. I am old and completely out of touch and I'm going to seem like a jackass. Yeah. And she's just like, we've got it. We're okay. good. And so it's <laughs> like, I, yeah, no, thanks. So cool. Cool. Well, thank you everyone else for joining us. We'll play Mark. Can you play the uh, music at plays over the very end credits of this? Give, give Mark Snow, the composer of the X-Files theme and this um, is due. So thank you for joining us. We will see you next month. Just like the X-Files. It's like some Sergeant Bilko music happening here. It's a Gomer Pyle episode stretched into two hours, an hour and a half.